So I've been tracking from afar, and since the end of November, you all have been in gospel reading and sermon, been focused on Luke's gospel, and we'll be hanging out in Luke for a while yet. Um, We've been reading this portion of the Bible scene by scene, slow-paced, and we've seen that Jesus is the one and only true God's agent of redemption. Jesus is unique and in an astonishing way, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, the agent of God's redemptive work, which is God's work to remake creation, to remake us, to renew us, to heal us, to save us, to reconcile us to himself, to one another, to ourselves, and to the world. Jesus Christ, simply put in Luke's gospel, is the world's true Lord. And if nothing else sticks this year, we will come to know him as that true Lord. Now, for these five Sundays in Lent, we're, we're zooming out and, and, and taking the gospel as a whole, not simply uh, smaller portions. Uh, we're coming to Luke's gospel with, with a question in mind. How do we actually follow Jesus? How do we become a part of what God's doing in our world today? What does God show us through Luke's gospel about being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus? How can you and I join with Jesus, living the life he called us to? How can we serve God's purposes in this world as exemplified and lived out and embodied by Jesus? And so over the course of these five Sundays in the season of Lent, we're, we're seeing five basic issues. We could focus differently, but we've chosen to focus on five facets of discipleship. What does it mean to be the people who align themselves with the purposes of God in our world today? First, we talked about beginning well. Hope you remember that. To follow Jesus requires certain beginning acts, initial acts, faith, repentance, denying ourselves, having an actual personal relationship with Jesus. For some of you, that may be a relationship of long standing. For some of you, it may be a fresh and new friendship that you're just beginning to discover. Then we looked at the role of the Holy Spirit. How over and over in Luke's gospel, Jesus offers us life in the Spirit. We're going to come back to that in earnest after Easter when we get into the book of Acts, the second volume of Luke's gospel, where we're going to see Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the dramatic impact of that pouring out. Last week, our focus was on money, wealth, and possessions. Just to rehash where Aubrey took us last week, God says, give 10%. That's the floor. Start there, and then work to arrange your life and your standard for living so that you can go beyond that, A, without hurting your health, B, without becoming a burden to others, C, without reneging on your financial obligations, and D, without undermining your ability to live and minister among those with whom you work. And then, as God leads, sacrificially go beyond the tithe. Next week, we'll wrap up the Lenten series by looking at the fifth and final fundamental issue in Luke's gospel for those who follow Jesus, our relationship to the poor. But now as we come to a fourth aspect of being followers of Jesus, we're going to turn our attention to prayer. Luke gives us a precious gift. Time and time again, from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his life, right through 
Luke gives us a picture of a praying Jesus. He fills out a picture of Jesus who has this ongoing need for conversation with his father, especially in moments of great transition. When I came across that uh, sentence in a commentary I was reading earlier this week, I, I just stopped and, and, and I got stuck there for a while and I thought, times of great transition. Hmm. Time to pray. Good to pray. Good for us all right now in this time of transition. I don't know what other kinds of transitions you're in right now, but if you take away nothing else from the example of Jesus, see a Lord who himself constantly prays as he faces trials, new adventures in gospel ministry, as he moves out and calls disciples. He called, uh, he called upon God in prayer already at the beginning. Uh, you recall his baptism. After his baptism, he was praying immediately. And it was in response to that prayer that he heard the affirmation from his heavenly father, you are my beloved son. He spent an entire night in prayer before choosing, even before choosing his 12 disciples. Not the only time we see him praying through the night. Just parenthetically, that might be an interesting thing to try sometime together. He prays on a mountaintop at the moment of his transfiguration. At two turning points in his ministry, he's by himself, but not far from his disciples. Who do you say that I am? He asks them coming out of a time of prayer. And then coming out of another time of prayer, they come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And notice, if you were listening today, the answer to that question is not a lecture. It's not handing them a textbook or a whole library of books about prayer. He says, when you pray, pray this way. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, I have to tell you, if you have ever been to the Holy Land, you will remember that place. If you have not been and have a chance someday, you owe it to yourself. I, uh, I didn't think it would have much of an impact on me last summer. I thought, well, okay, it's the Holy Land, you know, place of turmoil, lots of traffic, noise, lots of commerce, lots of kitsch, and yeah, that's all there. But when you come out of what is indisputably Caiaphas's house having seen the dungeon where Jesus was scourged before his crucifixion you stand on an ancient Roman street no question I remember standing on that street because all of a sudden I noticed that Nancy was standing alongside me holding her iPhone and shoot, shooting a picture of my feet and I said what are you doing she said you're standing where Jesus walked down to Gethsemane, which you can see in the valley below. He prayed. You know how fervently he prayed. And he didn't stop praying, even on the cross, where he, could inter where he interceded for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Luke is not alone. Each of the gospel writers, working from diverse sources and from their eyewitness accompaniment of Jesus, felt constrained to portray Jesus as an exemplary man of prayer. That was the collective memory of all of them. Jesus prayed. Well, let's start fundamentally, more fundamentally yet. What is prayer? 
We could spend the rest of the morning just trotting out definitions, but um, just a couple. John Calvin says, Prayer is the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. The chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. Not one of us would want to go through a day bereft of God's benefits. Prayer is how we acquire them. John Flavel, in 1692, wrote a commentary on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The catechism had been written in 1646 and 1647. It's it's the great catechism today of Reformed Christians. Presbyterians love and honor, well, most of them anyway, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But it was written mostly by Anglicans. True. This is not a chauvinistic thing. I'm just saying um, it's, it's a catechism that, that we do well to rediscover for ourselves. Um, Flavel wrote this commentary about 30 years later, and he said, reflecting on question 98 of the catechism, what is prayer? Answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, along with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Prayer is confessing our sins. It's asking God. It's having desires that are agreeable to his will. And it's thanking him for his mercy, for his answers to our prayer. What's the first qualification of an acceptable prayer, Flavel asks? That it be sincere and flowing from the heart of a regenerate person. Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Or Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you shall seek me with all your heart. Sincerity, a pure heart, a regenerate heart is the first qualification of acceptable prayer. Flavel goes on, the second qualification, it must be performed in the heart of a child by God by the spirit of adoption. Paul, writing to the Galatians, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, or Romans 8. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. But I love best of all the third qualification of an acceptable prayer. It must be fervent and important. Now, don't get stuck at that word. It's not used the way we use the word. Uh, You may think your prayer is important, but that's not the meaning. The, The word important here is important as in importune, meaning to beg, to entreat, to supplicate, to urge. This is begging prayer. Prayer must be fervent and persistent, not cold and formal. James 5, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And as we heard in today's gospel, Luke 11, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. At this point, Jesus gives us in Luke two parables to make this point. Beg. Importune, persist, persevere in prayer. Ask. I think a lot of us find it difficult 
to ask. Because we find it difficult to acknowledge our need. Unless we're devastated by poverty or illness or tragedy or severe addiction, we mostly subscribe to the secular gospel of self-reliance. To the extent that that's so with us, Jesus teaches us in Luke. He teaches us and catches up, up short for he understood human beings to be exceedingly dependent on their heavenly Abba, Father. And that meant for him that the form of prayer most often is petition. We are in need, so we need to ask frequently and fervently. Overwhelmingly, Jesus' teaching on prayer has to do with asking seeking, and knocking. It's no accident that um, in, in these two parables that we've heard at the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 18, uh, they're hinged together with yet a third parable at the tail end of Luke 18, which you can look at later on today, perhaps. In these two parables on prayer that Jesus gives us, the exemplary figures turn out to be vulnerable, vulnerable people expressing need. The first is a man who awakens his neighbor at midnight, explaining he must trouble him for bread at this most inconvenient hour because a friend has arrived unexpectedly. He has nothing to set before him. He wants to be hospitable. It's a big deal. The second figure is a widow whose few rights are threatened by a legal action against her. And in desperation, she badgers an unbelieving and indifferent judge for help until he finally acts to vindicate her against her adversary. The purpose of that parable of the persistent widow is to encourage them. Luke says, he, he, he names the purpose right at the outset. He said, the purpose is to encourage his followers always to pray and never to lose heart. And that's my encouragement to us today. Always to pray and never to lose heart. Because God is not like that judge. And you and I are not like that widow. Unlike the judge, God is good and generous and quick to provide assistance. Unlike the widow, we're not anonymous and alone, but the very chosen, adopted children of God, members of his kingdom. Therefore, if the woman, through her persistence, obtained from the judge what she desired, how much more shall we, through our persistence, receive from God what we ask? And if a wicked and shameless judge grants the request of a helpless and hopeless widow, how much more shall a gracious and loving father grant the request of his precious and forgiven children? The point of the parable, says Jesus, is to encourage all of us to continue to pray, to always pray, and never to give up or become disheartened or discouraged. And then we went to a second parable, Luke 11. I love the word that Jesus associates with prayer in verse 8, Luke 11, verse 8. He says, impudence. We're told to pray with impudence. When's the last time you, you associated impudence with prayer? The implication is that you and I are most likely far too polite in our praying. We're told to pray with impudence. 
Is, is there a kind of reverent impudence? Well, how could it be otherwise? If our passion, writes Raymond Ortland, is that delight in God will triumph in our generation, how can we not pray with a sense of the authority of it? After all, why are we here? Why do we exist at all? For the glory of God. But how does that work out? Listen to Jonathan Edwards. God is glorified not only when his glory is seen, but when his glory is rejoiced in. When those that see his glory delight in it, God is more glorified than than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and we might receive his glory and that his glory might be received both by the mind and heart. Which is why we pray, hallowed be your name. That's what Jesus calls us to pray over and over, that God's name would be hallowed in this world. Could we pray for that without urgency? Could we pray your kingdom come without boldness, without impudence? The other English versions uh, use translations like importunity, that was the old RSV, persistence, boldness, shamelessness, brazen insistence. All those translations are getting at it. We might say pray with sheer nerve. Look at the parable again. Here's a man comfortably asleep in bed. It's midnight. There's a knock at the door, a persistent knock. Who on earth at this hour? The man rolls over in bed and tries to ignore it and get back to sleep. Knock, knock, knock. The unwanted visitor pushes the button on the intercom. Hey, neighbor, I know you're in there. Mr. Neighbor thinks, the nerve of this guy. I can outlast him. And he pulls his pillow over his head and tries to go back to sleep. Mr. Nervy outside isn't going away. Neighbor, some out-of-town guests have just shown up. They're starving. We have nothing for them, and all the stores are closed. I don't need much. Just be a good neighbor and help me out here. Finally, Mr. Neighbor gets up and hits the intercom. Do you know what time it is? Do you realize how hard it was to get the kids to go to sleep tonight? And you show up at this ungodly hour and ruin my good night's sleep with your need? I know, I know. I don't blame you for being ticked off, but, but you've always been so nice to me. I just had to believe you wouldn't mind. Mr. Neighbor thinks. So now he's trying the you've always been so nice tactic. Would physics allow me to reach through the front door and punch him out? <laughs> Honey, can you believe this guy? He's right out of a cartoon. And his wife says he's always been a little off. He's not going away, and you know it. <laughs> just give him what he wants, and we'll be rid of him. So Mr. Neighbor goes downstairs, grumbling every step of the way, opens the door and says to Mr. Nervy, come on, let's go to the kitchen, get whatever you need, but just leave us alone. Jesus says, have you ever thought of prayer like that? Have you ever thought of prayer as a clueless impudence with your heavenly neighbor? But of course, God isn't asleep. Nor is God reluctant and grumpy. God isn't like Mr. Neighbor in the parable at all. So what's the message? Jesus tips us off when he begins verse 5 with the words, Which of you? He does the same thing in verse 11. What father among you? 
See, the parable draws a comparison between our horizontal relationships with one another and our vertical relationship with God. We know about friendship and neighborliness, neighborliness here at our level. We know that friendship's worth a lot, but it has limits. We also know about a father's love for his children. That love has no limits. Earthly fathers enjoy giving to their children. So look at verse 13. How much more, Jesus says, what incredible words those are. How much more? If impudence can get results when friendship is stretched beyond its limits, if fatherly love gives without limit, how much more does our Heavenly Father give? How much more does prayer get results with God, who is a generous neighbor and not asleep in bed, but sitting up waiting for us to drop by? Jesus wants us to know that God is not put off by persistence and boldness and impudence and nerve. He loves to give to those who ask. He loves to give to those who ask. So why don't we ask? He wants us to ask with earnestness, with intensity, with perseverance, with persistence, with impudence. The ancient prayer word is supplication. He wants us to be supplicants, begging him. John Calvin again. We must repeat the same supplications, not two or three times only, but as often as we have need. A hundred and a thousand times, we must never be weary in waiting for God's help. And did you get the equation there? Waiting is not sitting by doing nothing. Waiting is asking and not giving up. An ancient prayer from the prayer book goes like this. Let thy merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of thy humble servants and that they may obtain their petitions, make them to ask such things as shall please thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Martin Luther understood importunity in prayer, impudence in prayer. His last written words were, we are all beggars. That is true. He died two days later. He was absolutely right. We have nothing and have never had anything that we have not received, nor have we done anything good apart from God who did it through us. Begging good gifts from God is what petitionary prayer is all about. Ask God as beggars for what you need because he invites you to ask in that way. That's our true relationship with him. He's the provider. We, the receivers. Yeah, that's not all prayer is. I get that. You know that. Prayer in his great book, uh, the great book by J.I. Packer, is, is a lot of things. It's, he says brooding and praising and being searched by the Spirit, all of that. But at the core, where all people of pray, prayer bend their knees, prayer is asking. 
begging God to supply felt needs. Asking is the essence of praying. Which is why Jesus says, ask, seek, knock with increasing intensity. And if you know your Greek grammar at all, you know that what he's really saying in a present imperative is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Don't give up. And here's a promise from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, to that person it will be opened. So why do we pray? We pray because Jesus commands it. We pray because we need it. We pray because he promises to hear and to answer. And oh, in case you missed the most obvious thing at all, we pray because he puts the words in our mouth. Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which might more aptly be called the Disciples' Prayer, or in keeping with this Lenten series, the Followers' Prayer. Your kingdom come. Prayer is asking for the kingdom. We pray at the outset, Luther wrote, that all this may be realized in us and that God's name may be praised through his holy word and our Christian lives. This we ask both in order that we who have accepted it may remain faithful and grow daily in it and in order that it may gain recognition and followers among other people and advance with power throughout the world. So we pray that led by the Holy Spirit, many may come into the kingdom of grace and become partakers of salvation so that we may all remain together eternally in this kingdom which has now made its appearance before us and among us. We pray fervently and impudently for the coming and the expansion of God's kingdom, for the mission of the church. We don't pray merely for a crust of bread or for a temporable, perishable blessing, but for an eternal priceless treasure and everything that God himself possesses. It would be far too great, Luther goes on, for any human heart to dare to desire if God himself had not commanded us to ask for it. But because he's God, he claims the honor of giving far more abundantly and liberally than anyone can comprehend, like an eternal, inexhaustible fountain, which the more it gushes forth and overflows, the more it continues to give. Tap that fountain. Beg for the living water and the living bread. And the best prayer of all, verse 13 of Luke 11, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's okay to pray for little things. It's wonderful to pray for the most trivial things, like a place to park even. But God has more for us than that. He gives his best gift, his very lifeblood, his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. There's always more. God will keep giving us deeper desires, arousing in our hearts a yearning for his spirit. 
The best prayer to God is a prayer for God. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27. Now there's an agenda for prayer. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the conquest of sin and unbelief and self-righteousness and lukewarmness, more enjoyment of the Bible, more tenderness toward God, more love for others, the cleansing of our hearts from anger and envy and payback, more gentleness, more wisdom and knowledge, more power, more clarity, more growth, more of God. Jesus says the Heavenly Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, not to those who deserve the gift, not to those who just believe in the gift, but to those who ask. What are you waiting for? Amen.